Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Russ Cordell. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse... Uh, I'm going to read one verse there, 58. Verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Say, not in vain. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I want to tell you this morning that at the place and time that we are in, in the history of the Christian church, the history of our world, even if you will, and certainly the history of our nation, there are many things that are going to continue to present themselves to the modern Christian family, the modern Christian worker, uh, to you, Christian person following God. There are many things that are going to continue to present themselves to you in challenge to that very statement, in challenge to the work that we're at or we're supposed to be at. You're going to be faced with distraction. You're going to be faced with the cares of the world. Some of you are going to be faced with riches Most of us in this room right now, according to seven-eighths of the rest of the world, are wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice. There are things that are going to continue to present themselves as a direct challenge to who and what you are as a Christian and the purpose by which you are called. That labor that Paul is talking to when he's speaking to the Corinthians in chapter, excuse me, in verse 58. That labor that is not in vain if you get after it. But the distractions are coming. There are even lusts that will be presented to you. Now, I've said many times that does not just have to do with intimacy. It's fulfilling the needs of the flesh, getting distracted with things that draw us away, things that we're doing to serve ourselves, fun, entertainment, uh, all of those different types of things. They will continue to present themselves to you more and more powerfully every day. We need to be aware of that. And so as we talk about Labor Day, as we talk about what Paul said to the Corinthians, that your labor is not in vain, what he means by that is powerfully significant. When he says it's not in vain, it means that there is purpose, very critical, very critical purpose in the labor that you do in the Lord. Now your labor at home your labor in your job is very critically important too, right? You gotta buy food and you have to pay for a place to live and transportation and all of those different things, right? So clearly, if you're working, you're not working in vain. But if you're working to a place where you've set aside what God's called you to do, now you're working in vain, okay? Let's go to the book of Romans chapter 13. I'm gonna spend a little bit of time in this. I'm gonna give you four parts of a plan It's going to help you. It's going to bring to your attention the concerns of the Christian for today. Leadership that is concerned of what's happening uh, potentially in the churches. The things that are going to come against the church today. Now, I'm not talking about any of this other stuff we've been talking about for weeks and weeks. Forget that. We're not even going to go in there. I'm talking about things directly approaching and directly affecting you as a worker for God. Okay, Romans chapter 13 starting at verse 8. And if I were to title this message, uh, I would call it Jesus or Jonah. Jesus or Jonah. 
Romans chapter 13 gives us the first part of our plan, and I'll reveal that to you shortly. It says in verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, and here it is, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Can anybody else tell me any other person you can think of off the top of your head that scripture refers to that says that they came to fulfill the law? Anybody? Someone said it. Jesus. Jesus said that I didn't come to destroy the law or eliminate the law. I came to fulfill the law. What Paul is saying is he's tying that job, that, that, that work, that labor is going to have to do with loving our neighbor to the fulfilling of the law. In other words, you've got to be Christ-like. Just as he came to fulfill the law, so do you. It is your job to fulfill the law. So we start out that loving thy neighbor as thyself is the beginning of fulfilling the law. Now he lists that, you know, that list is the Ten Commandments that he threw in there. Now notice as he says that if there be any other commandment, it's briefly comprehended, comprehended in this saying that you love your neighbor. So in other words, he doesn't have to enumerate every single commandment. It all falls under this idea that you love your neighbor. Problem is that sometimes we don't describe, we don't get into the idea, what does it mean to love your neighbor? And so we're going to get there in this labor that is not in vain. If you look at Mark, you don't have to go there, but I'll just reference it. Mark chapter 12 and 30 says, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. James actually backs that up, James 2 and 8, and says the same thing. Now listen to how he says it. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and ye do well. What a tremendously powerful emphasis on loving thy neighbor. You see, the first part of what we need to do, we gotta lock this down, this, this sort of anti-distraction, anti-lust, anti-failing to do God's will, anti-failing to do our work, our labor that is not in vain. The first and foremost key factor, and we've gotta drill this down into ourselves. It's got to consume you. It's got to become exactly who and what you are. And that is to fulfill the law of our first work, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself it's powerful love your neighbor as yourself that is our first work that's the first piece let's go on in Romans chapter uh, same chapter verse 11 and it says in that knowing that the time the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep one of the distractions I said earlier one of the challenges one of the things that's going to continue to present itself to the Christian church is you're going to be lulled into sleep. 
The parallel, parallel, excuse me, the parable of the ten virgins shows that all ten at some point fell asleep. We're going to be asleep at times. But there's got to be that time. There's got to be that place in our walk and who and what we are that no matter how tired, no how, how much the labor just wears away at us, the, the, just, just, it gets so frustrating at times and it comes to no avail and we struggle and we fight. But you've got to get to a place in your walk, folks. The time is short. There's not much left. And we've got to get to a place that we're no longer susceptible to be a person who can fall asleep at the wheel. You've got to understand the critical nature of that command. You can't fall asleep because if you're asleep when the master comes, when the bell rings, when the trumpet sounds, you're not going to make it. If you're busy at the work of loving your neighbor as yourself, truly, deeply, Christ-like love, fulfilling the law type love for your neighbor It's going to be hard to fall asleep. But that will be one of the challenges facing the church moving forward. Getting tired. Getting weary in this good work. And wanting to go to sleep. Anybody that's been affected by this stuff recently knows that I've heard it over and over again and I can attest. Boy, you just get wiped out, tired. Got concrete in your feet. You just want to lay down and go to sleep. It's hard, difficult. So he says it's high time to awake out of sleep for now is our salvation nearer than we believed. How many can say that they believe that for today? Our salvation is near. (laughs) I'm not just coming from my opinion, folks. I'm talking about preachers and pastors and ministers and missionaries and evangelists all over the world. Different denominations, our people all over the place are looking at what's happening in the world today. You can feel it. You can sense it. We're seeing things that we have never, ever seen before. We've got to start to wake up and get out of our sleep and understand that now is our salvation nearer than we believed. Paul goes on in verse 12 to say that the night is far spent. The day is at hand. We know what day he's talking about. The day of the Lord. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Now we're all Christians here. We're, all, we're, we're living the good, right? We're, we're perfect. Remember people say, oh, you Christian hypocrites, you all think you're so good. and everything. Right? We're all good. We're perfect. None of us ever sin. Now, we don't make mistakes. You've heard me say before, my grandfather used to say, Sitting in a pew in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage make you a Chevy. I want to tell you today that we're just as flawed and just as capable of sin and mistakes as anybody else. I'm not a hypocrite standing in here. I'm somebody in here that's striving, desperately striving to stop living and working and and falling to the works of darkness. Amen? Amen. Somebody ever says that to you? Oh, you hypocrites in church, you think you're so perfect. No, that's why I'm in church. I go to the hospital when I'm sick. I go to church when I'm full of sin and stupidity and I do dumb things that hurt people and I make mistakes. And I come down to this altar and I say, dear God, please forgive me. Please forgive me for being such an idiot and just letting myself go and falling asleep and doing things that hurt people. That's what Christianity is really about. But he says, let us put on the armor of light. 
well, that's an interesting phrase. We know what the armor of God is. He taught it to the Ephesians. Putting on the whole armor of God, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, and so on. He says, let us walk honestly as in the day, not in riding and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness. Chambering is partying and doing lascivious things, not in strife and envying, but put ye on, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Remember I said earlier, one of the challenges that will continue to face the church, will continue to face Christians, is you'll be presented with opportunities to fulfill the lust of your flesh. I'm gonna say it one more time just in case you're not getting it. That just means sexual things. That's talking about God's over here, my fun is more important, my job is more important, my parties are more important, my friends are more important, my games are more important. We're going to continue to be presented with those opportunities to rationalize in our human minds that that's okay, I deserved it, I work for it, I work hard, I deserve to have this. The enemy's going to present it to you. But put ye on. The Lord Jesus Christ. See that armor of light, that that armor that he talks about is putting on that robe, that garment, the garment of praise, the garment of worship, the helmet of salvation, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Put on Jesus and don't make provision to fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Be aware. You know, if you're a person who's got a a big issue with, uh, uh, you just overindulge going to Games or something, football games or baseball games, something like that, or whatever, you know, whatever just constantly pulling you away. Be aware of that. Know what your challenges are. Know what your weaknesses are. The devil does. We used to tell the kids in youth class, the devil baits his hook with your favorite sin. Just know. So what is putting on the armor of light, putting on the Lord? Essentially, it's just putting on Christ. Look at Luke 24 and 7 excuse me, 47, says that and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That's Jesus speaking in the book of Luke. That's putting on Christ. That's what he said. That's part of the great commission. Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Is God opening up opportunities for you to witness, to, to minister, to talk to your coworkers and your neighbors and family members? Because they need to understand that Jesus said that he wants us to preach repentance and remission of sins to all nations. Look at Mark 16, 15, another part of that he says, and he said unto them, go into the world and preach the gospel to every creature. See, that's putting on the armor of light. What does that mean? You're a light in the world. I I get a picture of, of, of like this robe with light bulbs all over it, up and down, like, you know, just, oh, we're a light in the darkness. How? By following what his word said. He said in Mark 16, 15, preach the gospel to every creature. Acts chapter 1 and 8, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Witnesses to what? Witnesses to what God has done in your life for you. You see, that's the second part. That's the second piece of the four pieces. First is to fulfill the law. That's love your neighbor. Love them enough to want to be able to share these pieces. Love them enough to want to be able to share your testimony. What what did God do for you? How did God help you? Love him enough to learn how to teach a Bible study. Learn how to 
Be a minister. Learn how to work the altar. Love your neighbor enough to do what Christ would do were he in your shoes. Right? So the second piece is to fulfill your call. First fulfill the law and then fulfill your call. The great Charles Spurgeon. You notice I quote Charles Spurgeon a lot? The Prince of Preachers? 100 years plus ago, preached some of the most amazing sermons. He was an English minister. Incredible wisdom, powerful anointing. Charles Spurgeon said, no man can compass the ends of life by drawing a little line around himself upon the ground. No man can fulfill his calling as a Christian by seeking the welfare of his wife and family only. For these are only a sort of greater self. In other words, Christian, you're going to be tempted as a Christian coming up to take your chalk and you and your family and just draw a little line around you and say, this is what I'm taking care of right here. This is all I'm concerned about. We'll come to church. We'll give our offering. We'll sing in the choir. We'll do our thing. But just us, that's a temptation that's coming upon the church. And Charles Spurgeon knew it 100 years ago. So let's use a good example of of what can go wrong in this next step. Let's look at Jonah. Title of the message, Jesus or Jonah? See, I just gave you Jesus, and I'm going to give you Jonah. So Jonah, a Hebrew prophet, at a time, his contemporaries were Amos and Hosea, the other two prophets. And they knew and they understood that God was about to exact judgment on Israel. They were doing bad again. You know how Israel, they did good, and they were bad, and good, and bad, and good, and bad. Who's that remind you of? So, Hosea and Joel, excuse me, Amos, and Jonah were contemporaries. They were, they were, they were friends at the same time. They, they ministered to Israel at the same time, and they knew that Israel was doing bad. And so God was going to set up Assyria. That's what it's called then, Assyria, not uh, space Syria, Assyria. Set up Assyria as the heathen kingdom that was going to exact punishment on Israel. Now, sometimes you use the Babylonians, and sometimes you use the Midianites, all those different. But this time it was Assyria. And so Nineveh was the capital of this heathen empire. And these guys knew that God was going to use Assyria to punish Israel. So God puts a call onto Jonah's life to go to Nineveh and preach to them. Imagine how you would feel about that. You know that this country is designed to attack and destroy and and, and torture the United States of America. And God says, go over there and preach to them. And so Jonah doesn't like this. See, a lot of people believe that Jonah was afraid of the Ninevites and that Jonah was afraid they'd... And he kind of was. I mean, let's face it. He figured he'd be tortured and messed with and mocked and beat up and all these things. But he knew God would preserve him in there. He wasn't a fool. But it wasn't about that for Jonah. For Jonah, it was about the fact that he hated the Assyrians. He didn't want the Assyrians to have the salvation message. He didn't want them to be redeemed. He wanted them to suffer under the judgment of God. And so Jonah decides, well, I'm going to go to Tarshish. I'm going to go down. I'm going to jump on the boat. And I'm going to head as far in the opposite direction as I can from where God wants me to go. Can anybody relate? See, God's got a call on your life, whether you know it or not. If you've been saved, sanctified, Holy Ghost filled, water baptized in Jesus' name, and are living the life that God is blessing you, you have a call on your life to go to Nineveh. But see, sometimes some of us jump in a boat and we go as far west 
of Nineveh as we possibly can get. See, at the time, Tarshish was considered to be just about the end of the earth. Like, that, that's how adamantly far away from Nineveh that, that Jonah wanted to go. And of course, you know the story. He, he gets on the boat, and what does he do? He goes down into the bowels of the boat and goes to sleep. Remember what I said. You're going to be challenged to run away. You're going to be challenged to say, this is too much. I'm tired. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I want to go to sleep. And so he went down into the ship and went to sleep. Of course, you know, the storm comes. Can you think of anybody else that was on a boat and a storm suddenly came up, started causing some problems? Yeah. Jesus was fast asleep on that ship and the waters began to toss and turn. The winds blew. Of course, at that time, they came and said, Master, aren't you worried about this? And he said, be still. Jesus or Jonah? Anyone? Anyone? Jesus or Jonah? You can answer later. We're called to a work for God. And it may seem difficult. It may seem harm, harmful. It may seem difficult. You might think, I know they're going to reject me. I know they're going to think I'm a goof. I know they're going to think our church is wacky because we sing loud songs and we, 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 we're, we're tongue-talking Holy Ghost, born-again, heaven-bound believers in Jesus' name. Well, I'm proud to be a one God apostolic, tongue talking, holy rolling, born again, heaven bound believer in Jesus. Well, that's easy for you, Pastor. You're a pastor. They expect that out of you. You got a covering. You know, they look, oh, that's the pastor. He can be weird. Don't fall into that. You've got a calling, and it may seem difficult. But I know there's a story in this room right now of someone who said, I thought they'd never listen to me. I thought they'd never talk to me. But they took a chance, and they wanted to fulfill their call, and they reached out, and some awesome things have happened. I'm not stealing someone's testimony, but I'm just telling you, it's happening right now. Look what Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 8. He said, but now, excuse me, be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't hide it. Don't presume that people aren't going to receive it. Many will reject you. So What? You can't do anything about that. You can't cause the Ninevites to listen to you. But what you can do is fulfill your call. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. Paul was talking about the teachings that he had given them. Don't be ashamed of me either. They knew who he was. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Well, there's the word right there. Afflictions. Look that up sometime and see what that means. It means it's going to be hard. It's difficult. It's not like handing out candy to people. Hey, here's my story. Here's some candy. Okay, I'll eat it. Doesn't work like that. It's difficult. It comes with challenge. It comes with grief sometimes. People are hurting. They come with baggage. They come with challenges. They come with pride, preconceived ideas, things that they've heard someplace else. Just give God the chance. Just give God the opportunity to use what you can do through his testimony. Be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling. There it is. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which has given us, excuse me, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. The question is what's stopping us? What's holding the church back? You see, I believe the third part of this is to revive the call in us. 
Fulfill the law. Love your neighbor. Fulfill your call. Step up. But I think many of us could say we could use a little bit of revival in our call. When was the last time we spoke to someone about Jesus? When was the last time we invited someone to church? When was the last time we felt the courage enough to reach out or call that person we haven't spoken to for so long? Part three is to revive our call. Listen to this little story I found. I thought you'd find this interesting. It says that Satan summoned three demons before him and gave them a project. He said, you are to go throughout the earth, he commanded, and I want you to deceive as many people as you possibly can, causing them to be lost. But before you go, I want to hear how you plan to deceive them. So the first demon stepped forward and said, I'm going to tell all these people that there is no God. Satan shook his head saying, that would work on a few people, but most wouldn't buy it. There's too much evidence that a creator God exists. I reject your plan because it wouldn't deceive many people at all. The second demon came before him and said confidently, I will teach everybody that there is no hell. Satan just laughed. He said, people know better than that. They know there's a place where unrepentant sinners will burn, never to live again. Your plan would never work either. It may deceive a few people, but eventually they would catch on to you. The the third demon rose and said, I've got the plan. I will tell them that there is no need to hurry. Satan said, go. You're going to deceive everybody. See, Jonah was running from a call for several reasons. He didn't like the Ninevites. Maybe he was lazy. He was fearful of what they would do. I heard someone say one time they believed that the Ninevites were cannibals. I never did verify that. Maybe one of you Bible scholars can tell me if that's true. But the people of Nineveh were wicked. The Bible says that they were a wicked nation and they did awful stuff. You can look in Nahum chapter 3 and it tells you how bad they were. It's an ugly story. So Jonah sleeps. The storm comes. By the way, if it's calm when you go to sleep, I guarantee you eventually your storm is coming. You're not going to be able to sleep through it. Your storm will come and you're going to be shaken awake. And the question is, is were you prepared before you fell asleep or were you Jonah? Jesus or Jonah? Some sleeping Christians protest that they are not asleep at all. I've heard people say that. They'll say things like, we talk about Jesus all the time. You can talk in your sleep. I know people that do. Some people say, well, we have a walk with Jesus. We're, we're Christians. Do you ever see a sleepwalker? They're out there. People say, well, we have passion for Jesus. I just wept in worship and I prayed. Do you know that people can actually cry in their sleep? We have joy and we rejoice in Jesus. You can also laugh in your sleep. I've heard that too. I had a friend of mine that did that. We think about Jesus all the time, some can say. But you can think while you're sleeping as well. It's called dreaming. We've got to be careful about that sleep. In the second chapter of Jonah, he's in the belly of the fish. He, he, you know, do you know that Jonah actually at one point 
was so adamant about not wanting to fulfill this thing that when the seas were arisen and they re- he revealed to them who he was, he said he was a, a prophet sent from God and they, they believed him, he actually volunteered to be thrown over. Did you know that? He's like, oh, just toss me over and, and this will all be over. He was willing to commit suicide, potentially, over continuing to fulfill his call. Crazy. Well, eventually they cast lots and the lot fell on him anyway. Now, if you ever want to do an interesting study, go into the Word of God and look at places where they cast lots. Very interesting. God has used the casting of lots to exact his will many times. So, of course, you know the story. They, they pick him up and they pitch him in the water. It goes down, and he describes this later on, the seaweed wrapped around his head, and I saw the great deep and so forth. Now, I just want to tell you one thing. This whole controversy about big fish and whale, and everybody thinks they're a scholar because they go, it really wasn't a whale, it was a big fish. I want to tell you that the word in Greek that was used there just simply, it denotes a large sea creature, okay? Jesus said whale when he described uh, three days going into hell. The Old Testament says big fish, okay? Don't get wrapped up in that. Which, by the way, can you think of someone else who went down into the depths for three days? Of course, it was Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jonah even describes, when he says it, he calls it the belly of hell, when he's there. It must have been pretty bad stuck in this fish. But he's there repenting. Of course, now the real deal is hit. The storm has hit, and now he's reaping what he has sown in the belly of this fish, and he begins to repent. And of course, God hear, hears his prayer, and he causes the fish to puke him up, right? That's wonderful. You think he's ever going to do this again after that experience? So God, again, sends him. God's, God's will has not deterred. His mission is not deterred. God sends him again to Nineveh. His plan is unchanging. And all he says, this is beautiful. Now, all, I've preached all these messages, and I try to come up with all this scripture and come up with these things to keep your attention and be clever and be in the right time and do all this stuff. And Jonah goes to one of the most wicked cities in the world, a very large city. Think of, think of like the Los Angeles or the New York of that time, the capital of the most wicked country in the world. And he says... Yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's it. Mic drop. And the whole place repents. God's will is done. (laughs) Makes me angry. So so Nineveh repents. Okay, now, I'm just giving you the four story just to get you refreshed here and keep your attention. But this this is where it really hits the home right now. Jonah did not like this work. He didn't even like the fact that the Ninevites repented. Now, I never would prescribe that to anybody here, like you're mad because someone repented. Don't get me wrong here, but listen how this goes. Jonah went out of the city. It says he went out way out to the east of the city, climbed himself under a tree, and it was real hot, and, and he built himself a little shelter. And the Bible says, now listen to the words, God prepared for him a gourd. In other words, he, he caused a plant to grow up and sort of cover over Jonah and give him shade. So Jonah was like, well, hey, look at me. Look what, I, look, look what God did for me because I, I followed his will and it's a blessing from God and isn't it wonderful? But then God says, it says that God then prepared a worm to go in the night and destroy the gourd and so his covering is taken away. Folks, I want to tell you, be careful of what you assume is your blessing and what is locked in and that you're going to own. God gave me this job. God gave me this house. God gave me this car because I can tell you in the moment, in a second, he can take it away just like that. 
Don't get too proud about what you think. God gave me this because I, you know, I'm righteous and great and wonderful. Or false humility. Oh, I, I was so wonderful. God bless me. And then lock it in your heart that you own that forever. That job, that's not your job. That's God's job. That house is not yours. That car is not yours. That life is not yours. So in the night, he can send that worm and poof, it's all gone. And so Jonah wakes up, the sun is hot, the wind is beating, and now he's lamenting over this whole thing, and, and he's angry. He's actually angry about the plant dying, right? Now listen to what God says to him. This is so poignant. More or less, God is saying, how dare you? He says, then God said to Jonah, it is right for you to be angry about the pl- or is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And he said, is it right for me to be angry even to death? But the Lord said, you have had pity on the plant for which ye have not labored nor made it grow. You didn't get that job. I blessed you with it. You didn't get that car or that house or that thing or that money. I blessed you with it. You following me now? You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored nor made it grow, which came up in the night and perished in the night. And listen to what he says. And should I not pity Nineveh? That great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. You see what God said to him there? How dare you? Those Ninevites are souls. There's 120,000 people that need me. They were destined for a journey to hell. They don't know the difference between right and left. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't have this life. They didn't have your testimony. They don't know what it's truly like to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords and get these blessings and have this wonderful family and this awesome anointing and this terrific praise and worship and the blessings of jobs and homes and cars and all of these things that God bestows upon us. The Ninevites had none of that. And he said, how dare you? Why? Would you just assume that if this plant is so meaningful to you, that 120,000 souls don't hurt me right here? See, Jonah made three very critical errors, and people often do. Number one, they quit. They just get tired. Someone else can do it. Number two, they separate themselves from others. They get away. Jonah went away outside the city by himself. He should have stayed there amongst the Ninevites and ministered to them and befriended them and taught them further and showed them the Christian walk. You see, salvation, just because you got dunked, just because you knelt here and prayed and were filled with the Holy Ghost and had that awesome, wonderful, beautiful experience we've seen so many times, you got into the water and your, your sins were washed away, that's not where it ended. You see, you've got a call. You have a call like Jonah. You've got a work to do. It doesn't end there. And so he separated himself and said, well, I'm all done. And he went off and hid by himself. God was not pleased. And thirdly, Jonah became a spectator. He sat back and just watched, expecting God to do the rest. Coming to a close very soon, but I want to take you one more time. Remember I said there are many things that are going to challenge you. They're going to challenge the church to walk away from your call, to walk away from the fulfillment of the law. Revelation chapter 3. Go ahead and turn there with me. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus teaches, begins to teach about seven churches. Now there's a whole lot of thought about what these churches represent, who they are and what they are. Did they exist? 
Were they churches? Were they now? Are they characteristics of the church today? But they were certainly examples. They were certainly a message that he had to send. Revelation chapter 3. Go to verse 13. We're going to talk about the church at Laodicea. The complacent church. The lukewarm church. He said, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith Amen, and the faith, excuse me, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, Laodicea was a city that was very wealthy, very rich, also like a Los Angeles or a New York of today. It was surrounded by two other cities, sister cities, Hieratus and Colossae, where we have the book of Colossians, where Paul wrote to the Colossians. And Laodicea was very rich and wealthy. They had a medical school there. They had, a, 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 they had developed this ISAV, this medicinal ISAV. Apparently, this was a very big issue, and they, they've determined this through archaeology and through other study and through historical reference, that there were a lot of people that had eye issues, infections, and things like that. Maybe it was because of the desert and the sand was always blowing, or I don't know. But they had developed this miracle ISAV, and people bought it, and they came from, from all over the places to, to get this stuff to heal their eyes. The problem that Laodicea had is they, had their own, they did not have their own water source. So Hieratus had hot springs, wonderful healing hot springs. As a matter of fact, they still exist today. And people would go there and, and they would soak in the hot springs. And of course, very medicinal and healthy and all that kind of stuff. And so what Laodicea would do is they would pipe that water in from the sister city, that hot spring water through underground aqueducts. And this, is, this has been archaeologically discovered and so forth, right? Now, Colossae had water that would come out of the mountains. It was ice-cold water. It was beautiful, pure water, and it would stay very cold. Well, they would pipe that water in, too, all the way over to Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was pretty far away. And so the problem that they had is that by the time those waters got there, whether they were the very hot waters of the hot springs or the very cold waters of Colossae, by the time they got to Laodicea, guess what those waters were? You nailed it. They were lukewarm. Oftentimes, people would drink that water and it would make them sick because in warm water, deposits, calcium deposits can form and all this stuff can build in their bacteria, right? And so their water was nasty, In verse 15, he goes on to say, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou would be cold or hot. Now, the word for hot in that passage is zestos. It's it's actually where we get derived the English word zest or zeal. Okay? Now, I'm going to give you a little tip. This is part of the fourth piece. So hang in there. Remember zeal. So, verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking now. The word lukewarm in that passage uh, comes from the word tepid, and it depicts Christians that are essentially backslidden, or they're just, meh, I don't care. They're apathetic. Okay, verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, knowest not thou that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. See, Laodicea was extremely wealthy. They had everything. Nobody wanted for anything. As a matter of fact, they are known to have been manufacturers of a beautiful black wool, and they would spin uh, spin this thread, and they would create these garments of a dark black, silky black wool. And it was beautiful and very expensive. And they were rich and wealthy because they sold the ISAV, and they sold all these goods. But Jesus is saying, you're not rich at all. You're blind, and you're poor, and you're wretched. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. 
See, Jesus' gold is, is, is the treasure that really matters. And I think you know what that is. His word, his will, his way, his walk. That's the gold. And then he says, and white raiment. Now, if you know scripture, you know that white raiment is very significant. It's the gown that was handed to the guests at the king's wedding to say that you were welcome into the king's uh, wedding. It's the raiment, the white robes that are being worn by the people standing around the throne, waving palms and saying praise unto God and holy, holy at the time of the rapture. That white raiment is critical. It's what we get when we get dunked in the water and we come out of there and our robes are washed clean like the priest in the tabernacle when he would sacrifice that animal and he would wash out his robes and wear that pure garment. Why? So he was able and permitted to enter into the king of kings and the holy of holies behind the veil into the place of the ark. So Jesus is saying, put away your black garments. That means nothing to me. It's worthless. You need the white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. So he's using their own deal with him. He's using their symbology. He's using that to say, you need the right kind of eye salve, not your special stuff but the kind I'm giving you to open your eyes to what I'm talking about. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Now here, listen what he says again. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You see, in Jesus' words, zeal is the opposite or the antithesis of complacency. Zeal, zest, fervency, excitement. See, our fourth need in this process to revive our call and to fulfill what God has asked us to do is we have to add zeal to our walk. If you looked introspectively right now and looked, take take the COVID period out of it. We've all been a mess over this whole thing. But in your walk over the last two years, five years, 10 years, can you honestly say that you've had zeal for God's work? See, the temptation that's going to continue to be presented to you as a church is to never revive your zeal. Don't get excited. Don't get fired up. Don't worry about it. Go about your business. Fulfill your duties. Do your job. Stay calm. Right? This is what the enemy wants. This is what the enemy wants to see in the church. And the fourth and final piece is you need to add zeal. We have to find a place. Well, pastor, that's your job. You've got to get me excited and fired up about things. It all falls on leadership, right? I'll take some ownership in that. And if you were here for 10-10-10 service this morning, I hope those of you who are here, and I'm not asking for accolades and I'm not asking for prizes, I came in this morning and I just kind of felt a little fired up. I didn't expect to get as fired up as I did. But you know what? I looked out in the room and I saw some wonderful faces that were praising and worshiping with me, and I got a little bit of zeal fired up in me. Can anybody attest to that? I'm not asking for a badge or glory. I'm just saying, I just felt like I needed to add a little bit of zeal. Okay, so if you're going to say, well, pastor, that's your job. You've got to get me fired up. Give me a reason to be excited. Oh, son, I'll tell you what. If you look back on your life and you can say to yourself that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has plucked me out of a destiny going to hell and you can't get excited and fired up about that and say, yes, amen, hallelujah, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords loves me, calls me a child. He's plucked my soul out of the pit of hell. I've got a destiny in a heaven waiting for me. I'll tell you what, I can get some zeal going thinking about that. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and I knock 
The church of Laodicea had so pushed him aside that the precious Savior, the one who gave them what they had, had to knock on the door and ask to come in. Oh, whoa, if we ever get to a place like that. I've never seen that here. We let, we get, we let God come in. We, we invite him in every time. God, this is your place first. I hope you're here before me. Shame on the church of the, of, of the king of kings. If we ever have a place or they or somebody out there is in a place where God's got to knock on the door and say, can I come in, please? What a horrible thing that must be. That's not here. Verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So after all of that stuff, that heavy-duty stuff that, that we had to learn and read and understand as a warning for us, he gives us that beautiful promise. If you overcome, if you fulfill the law by loving your neighbor, if you fulfill your call by stepping up, if you revive your call by taking action, and if you add to your call some zeal, You'll overcome and you'll sit with him in the king of kings and the throne, and, and excuse me, in the Lord of lords and his throne next to him in glory. Stand with me this morning. I'm going to take you to Titus chapter 2 as we're closing. Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 says, Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us, that ought to give you enough zeal right there, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar, that means special, very valuable people. And they're what? Zealous of good works. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no man despise thee. You want to know why I taught this message today? Because God spoke into my heart. This was for me, just as much as it was for anybody else. But he spoke to me and he said, speak these things. Exhort them, rebuke if you have to with all authority and let no man despise. If you despise, you're angry at me for what I taught today? You, you got a bigger problem. First, fulfill the law. Love your neighbor. That means the person standing next to you that goes to church with you, the one that irritates you, the one that isn't doing things the way you want him to or her to. That means your coworker, your, your family member, neighbor, whatever the case may be. Love them. And that love means those other things we talked about. Share your witness. Be willing to talk to them. Reach out to them. Tell your story. You know, everybody can refute, refute your doctrine. Brother Kylie said this for years. People can refute your doctrine. Oh, that's your interpretation of the word of God. Blah, 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 blah. They can't refute your testimony. They can't take away from you what God has done in your life. They can't take away from me the miracles that I have seen happen in my own life, in my own family, the things that God has done for me right before my eyes. I'm telling you, I shouldn't be alive today. I shouldn't even exist if it were not for God and his grace today. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Number two, fulfill your call. Understand, it didn't stop over here. That wasn't the end of the road. You got a call. Don't be Jonah. Remember I said, Jesus or Jonah, which one are you going to be? Jesus had some pretty harsh words for the church of Laodicea. 
I'm going to go with Jesus. Just so you know, I mean, I, I, didn't, I don't think it's a mystery, but I'm going to go with Jesus. <clears throat> Third, revive the call if you've quit or you've drifted. Revive the call in yourself. Time is short. Everybody cheered, everybody laughed, everybody clapped, everybody knows it's true. Time is short. It's time to revive the call and forth. Add zeal. Add zeal. Get excited. Find a way. Because when you stand before him someday and you're telling him, well, nobody did anything to help me get excited about this. Nobody did anything to help me get things going. Nobody gave me a reason. He's going he's to look at you and he's going to extend a, a hand. It's got a giant hole in it. And a, and, and a head that's got scars of crowns and thorns and all these things in it. And he just might say, depart from me, you that work iniquity. I knew you not. So be aware. Philippians 3 and 14, I read it this morning. I alluded to it in our, our 10, 10, 10 service. I said, Paul is talking about pressing towards the mark, the prize of the high calling. See, that's the prize for the high calling is to spend an eternity with him. This altar is open this morning. I hope I've intrigued you and excited you and encouraged you and gave you some things to look out for things that you know that you don't want to let into your life that that's not going to happen in my world that's not going to happen in this church because we're going to revive a call we've got a work to do this COVID thing's going to get do whatever it's going to do and get out of the way but the church is moving forward God's got a call for this body for this church not the building you he's got a call for you to do and we're going to see more souls coming we're going to see more people accepting God we're going to be seeing more people who said I've had enough of what's going on out there I've had enough of what life gives me they're going to look at this situation and say I've been trying to do it my way all these years and I'm done with that it's not gotten me anywhere I want to do this thing the way God wants me to do it and when they do that they're going to be ready and we're going to be ready in Jesus name amen in Jesus name Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.